Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. I'm going to ask the ushers forward with this. 2020 campaign brochure that I know some of you already have, but you know you need a second one because it needs to be at your office. It needs to be on your coffee table. But I'm doing it primarily because I know some of you didn't get one last week. But please take one of these, even if you need a second copy. It wouldn't be bad for you even to think after today's sermon. Matter of fact, you can take one in faith thinking that after I speak this morning on the third element of our plan, that you might want to give this to someone who has a vision that is like ours to see what I'm about to talk about become a reality. So take another one, have it, pass it on to someone else. If you've got a copy that uh, is sitting around your house already, or if you need one because you weren't here last week, please take one. I do think that last week, obviously, much of what we talked about is dealing with things that we will be experiencing the first week, what we're going to do in terms of our outreach and our church planting, planting Bible teaching churches that that preach it straight up. And then this week, it goes far beyond our church in talking about the training component. Let's just get this all in perspective. The Great Commission, make disciples. We want to see people's names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The eternal destiny of individuals changed, not because we are cool in our culture's eyes, not because we have self-help programs, not because we're doing good deeds, but because we are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the call to repentance and faith. That changes people forever. And we know that one of the greatest ways to do that corporately is to plant Bible teaching teaching churches that have an evangelistic fervor. That is what we're all about. We started 13 and a half years ago with the mission to always be working to plant new churches. It took us a long time to get that together as we took people on our staff and got them trained up and then sent them out to replicate what's going on here in various places. God's good hand has been upon us in that endeavor. We've seen these churches do very, very well. We planted a brand new one in the middle of this series. On the first weekend, we sent off our team to Boise, Idaho. Idaho. They're getting ready for that. They're starting their services in January and uh, doing all the team building right now and Bible studies and canvassing and all they're going to do to reach that community for Christ. The best method of evangelism in a community is put a Bible teaching expository kind of church that's going to take the Bible verse by verse, bring it with an evangelistic fervor and passion to their community. It is the best way to see people one to Christ. So all of that in the Great Commission, the first element, the first participle that we find, at least on our English text, is to find that that task of baptizing. Make disciples by baptizing them in the authority of the triune God. That baptism can't take place as a symbol on the outside of what's happened on the inside unless people have been evangelized. So that was the first component. And we said, in the next eight years, we want to step this up in a way that we never have before. We want to plant more church planting churches, and we are excited to get that ball rolling with some goals on the horizon. Now, Last week, then, we said what we need if we're going to be a church-planting church is we need to have a strong base. The mother church, the home base, needs to be strong. It needs to be vibrant. It needs to accommodate more people. It needs to be the kind of place that you and I can bring our neighbors to in South Orange County and say, come here, the Word of God taught here. And when people say, what's this all about? You say, like they do in John 1, come and see. Check it out. Learn the Bible verse by verse. Get under the teaching of an expository pulpit. Hear the evangelistic cry of our heart individually, and let's see what we can do to reach our community for Christ. So we need a strong base. We've got a 20-year window here just to get started, to put some money, as we said last week, into our facility to make it what it should be to poise us for the future. That was an exciting element, certainly for us. We had all the screens up last week to try and give you a visual of that. This week, and all that, by the way, comes from that simple statement, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That's what Christ said. So reaching them culminates in baptism, teaching them to observe all that I command. That's a long process. Every Christian spends the rest of their life being taught to observe all that Christ commanded. It changes our lives. And all of it comes back around to the reaching. And the first participle in the Greek New Testament there in the Great Commission is the word go. I know it doesn't sound like a participle in English, but go is the culmination of Christ training these 11 men here at the end of Matthew 28, to go and reach and teach people. So how do I reach them and teach them? I got to have people that are trained to do that. That's the training aspect. So reaching 
culminates in baptism, teaching, a process of teaching people to observe all that Christ commanded, and then training, getting them ready then to go back out and do evangelism and discipleship. We need the training component. Now, a lot of that's just happening as we do church here together. We have various programs and things that we do to try and identify those gifted people. But we want to take that to the next level as God has opened up a door. And we got excited about that last week because it's all interrelated. We really can't expand and optimize our campus unless we have more square footage. That was made available by that big building right across the street, 145 Columbia. And we put our sights on that and talked a little bit about how that affects our campus. Now, let me talk to you today about how it's going to affect this component of training people to serve Christ. Those, that's our call, right? Make disciples, reaching them for Christ with the gospel, teaching them through this expository method and discipleship amongst the people of our church, and then training them to serve Christ. Already, I kind of put my cards on the table, so to speak, and said, hey, you know what we're going to be talking about, something we've called Compass Bible Institute, a brand new school that is going to train people. And I know, based on my emails and letters I got this week, I know people are saying, why in the world would you do that? We have enough Christian colleges, don't we? You can go up the street, you can go down the freeway, you can find Christian college. We don't need another Christian college. Well, I'm glad you brought that up and wrote me about that this week. Because <laughs> I want to tell you why this is very, very, very different than the average Christian college. As a matter of fact, I would say it's so rare among Christian colleges today that it almost looks nothing like the average experience at a Christian college. Christian colleges, most of them today, started as Bible institutes. They went from Bible institutes to Bible colleges to Bible universities, and they're called all different things, but most of them started back in the 1880s, that's when this all ramped up, of schools that were responding to the liberalism of people that were throwing the authority and inspiration of the scripture out the window, and they set up training centers to get people prepared, not only in sound doctrine, but most importantly, to serve Christ. Specifically, some of the best, I think, to specifically serve Christ by reaching people. That's why it has, at one point, the Bible Institute movement in America produced 50% of all of the missionaries on the mission field trace their education back to a Bible Institute. And that's why I've chosen that word, Bible Institute, Institute, to be the word that kind of historically defines something that, unfortunately, I say that from my perspective, not that Christian colleges and universities aren't a good thing, but they have morphed into something that is not in keeping with their original mission. Originally, they weren't about accreditation. They weren't about getting some degree. They weren't about providing a Christian environment for me to learn to be a dentist or an accountant or an architect or whatever I might be. That is Christian college today. That's what the Christian colleges are saying. Send your kids to our school. We'll give them a Christian environment to be able to go and do whatever chosen field that they're going to choose to do. And sure, you can go there and study the Bible, and there'll be some training there. But even the biblical training is affected by the fact that this is simply a Christian environment in most cases that's lost a connection to their original mission. And the original mission, as the Bible Institute movement started in America, was not just to make sure we're bastions of sound theology, but to get people ready for the work of ministry. Let me quote to you from the institution, my alma mater, that I graduated from many moons ago. In 1885, Dwight Lyman Moody stood up at downtown at the corners of LaSalle and Madison downtown, and he spoke to a crowd much like this in a room at Farwell Hall, and he said, I have a vision to start a Bible school. Matter of fact, I'll even give you the name of it. It was the Bible Work Institute, if that gives you any sense, that this was not just about filling people's minds with good theology. It was about preparing them to do Bible work. That's how they put it. Now, that name kind of morphed into Bible Institute, which then started a movement of Bible Institutes across the country. But he wanted to be Bible work. He stood up there in January of 1885, and here's what he said at Farwell Hall in downtown Chicago. He said, I will tell you what I want, what I have on my heart. I want to take people that have the gifts. It means they're gifted. They, they have a calling and a gifting to serve and to do ministry. I want them to take those people that have those, those gifts in their life, and I want to train them, there's our word, for the work of, love this, reaching people. I mean, those are two elements. And of course, those were designed in my thinking back actually in the late 80s without any reference to this particular speech or this sermon that Moody gave. But those were the words I thought nicely encapsulate two-thirds of the Great Commission participles. We are training and we are reaching and of course, the church of pastoral work is all about teaching. He said, listen, that's what we want to do. We want to find gifted people. We want to train them. And we want to train them to reach people. Get right back out there to reach people with the gospel. His approach was very different. In an early prospectus that was written about the institute they were starting, the Bible Work Institute, he wrote this, that study and work go hand in hand. See, and by work, he didn't mean secular career. He meant the work of doing ministry. 
If you're going to be a Sunday school teacher, we need to teach you the theology to teach Sunday school. And then we need to get you actively involved with some mentorship and coaching and oversight. And we need to help you learn how to teach a Sunday school class. If you're going to be a missionary, we want to teach you all the theology and the gospel truths you need to know. But we need to train you to be that. If you're going to be a pastor, you're going to be a youth pastor, you're going to be a biblical counselor. We need to give you the knowledge and then we need to give you the work. And that's got to go hand in hand. One historian put it this way when he looked back at Moody founding the Bible Work Institute in Chicago. He said, Moody vigorously preached that the coordination of classroom knowledge must be paired with actual experience. You've got to have experience. Now, again, you're saying, what's the difference between going to one of these very fine Bible colleges or Bible universities today and, and, and studying there? I mean, they're going to have uh, smarter professors and, and better teachers and better facilities and all that. No, you're right. They will. But I can, I can assure you what's lost is the combination and marrying of those two things. We don't have the vigorous, we don't have that vigorous requirement of a coordination of classroom knowledge and actual experience. While speaking in San Francisco out here on the West Coast, Moody, after sharing his vision and his heart for this new institute, they asked him, this was actually published in the paper in San Francisco back in the 1880s, what do you intend to have taught at this Chicago Institute? The answer, the great fundamental doctrines of the Bible. And, and he listed some of those, and then he said, and of course, a great deal of the instruction will be in the methods of practical work, Christian work. <laughs> we got to have the doctrine, and we got to have a great deal of instruction, a great deal of instruction in the practical methods of the work that is to be done. That's a connection that I, I'm unfortunately in a Christian culture that has helped to adapt Bible institutes to Bible colleges to Christian universities. All of that has moved so far away from that to where we're concerned about accreditation, we're concerned about the academy respecting us, we're concerned about being a Christian version of UCI or UCLA or Cal State Long Beach, instead of saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, to the back, to the heart of all of this was to train up gifted people to reach people for Christ, a singular focus. Now, some schools kept that vision a lot longer than others. But if you look back in the history of the Bible Institute movement, which Biola, by the way, was one of. Matter of fact, that acronym you may not know is the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. You had one in Denver. You had one in Dallas. You had one in, in, up in, in the East Coast uh, at Gordon College. You had it down south in, in, in Florida. You had it even up with the Western in Portland, Oregon. You had these schools popping up all over the country, and most of them started with this focus. And again, I'm not here to bash Christian colleges, and I'm not here to bash Christian universities. My hat is off to them. Some of the smartest guys in the country are working for these schools. I respect them. I know a lot of them. I'm friends with them. I get it. But I can tell you as a, as a practitioner, if you will, trying to, to do church work and trying to prepare people to do church work, I found plenty of people from the premier institutions of higher learning in Christian circles, Christian universities, Christian colleges, will come out with a degree in their hand. In some cases, an undergrad degree in Bible and theology and a, and a master's degree in divinity. That's the ultimate training for ministry. They get a master's of divinity. Divinity. I can be a shepherd, a leader. I can lead in all things that relate to, to church work. Uh, we have had, and you can ask any of the pastors on staff, because most of us go through the interviewing process. Well, all of our pastors will interview anyone who comes here to work, and we will work through the process. Sometimes we start on, on Skype or FaceTime, and we get their resumes. Here, question that inevitably asked, tell me about your experience during your training. I can say this, and I'm not exaggerating. I know we have all experienced, not just me, graduates from our best Bible schools and Christian universities who've never, with a degree in hand, ever taught a single Bible lesson in a real life setting. Not a single time. If you've taught a class in your, your whole, whole of your Christian life, you've done more than many people graduating with the stamp of approval, with a gown on like they're the clergy of the ancient European schools, walking across the stage, shaking a hand of a very smart president of some school, and they've had zero experience. They don't even know if they can teach. Oh, don't they take homiletics classes, that class on teaching you to preach? Yeah, they do. But, you know, they'll have to say, well, yeah, I did. I taught a 15-minute thing in front of a camera. I had my peers kind of, you know, give me a critique, and I read some books on preaching. Have you, ever, have you ever taught a Sunday school class of eight junior high boys, right? Answer, no. That happens. It happens more frequently than you might think. How many of these graduates, and we've met many, who've never personally shared the gospel in any public setting ever? There are plenty of them when I ask them, tell me about someone you led to Christ, personally led them to Christ. And the answer often is, well, sadly, I haven't. 
These are people with masters of divinity. These are people with Bible degrees in theology. How about this? And this is probably the majority, if not the very high majority. We ask questions like, have you had a mentorship, some kind of mentorship in a functioning local church? You've got all the classroom knowledge, but you haven't had any practical training. As Moody said, a great deal of instruction in the methods of practical work. You haven't had that training. Have you had any mentoring in a local church setting? The answer is often no. Graduates without ever constructing a philosophy of ministry. Some of them, when I ask them that question, don't even know what a philosophy of ministry is. They wouldn't even know how to start thinking about a philosophy of ministry. They hope to do it learning on the job. That's not how it's supposed to work. They don't know much about budgeting. Some of them know nothing about budgeting, staffing, managing volunteers. None of those things are taught. And certainly many people come out with no functional knowledge or experience in any of that. Now, I don't mean to say that whether it's Reuben Archertory or Dwight Lyman Moody or any of the rest of them that were instrumental in launching the Bible Institute movement uh, were innovative. It's not that they were innovative. As a matter of fact, this is a biblical kind of approach to ministry. It was all about theological training and training in the practical work of doing ministry. You can't imagine the Apostle Paul, can you, sitting around and saying, I'm going to get Titus and Silas and Timothy. We're going to get together. We're going to have a class. Let's have a theology class where we'll sit around and we'll talk about the great deep truths of theology. Now, of course, there was a lot of theological training going on. But rather, we would find that you don't have to imagine it. You can read it in the scripture. He would say, you know what? Let me uh, prepare you like a soldier for war. Let's get you conditioned like an athlete for some kind of, of, of great contest. Let's make sure that you are like a hard-working farmer. You have all the utensils and tools to do the work. You could see the Apostle Paul taking his protégés, his disciples, his pupils, and doing that. Of course you can. You don't have to imagine it because it's in the Scripture. Let me give you one passage this morning, 2 Timothy chapter 2, that will lay out for you a picture, a multifaceted picture of the kind of training that the Apostle Paul was engaged in and the kind of training that I think needs to return to something that is called, and I think hearkening back to the day when this was more the focus, a Bible institute. I would like you, if you got your notes this morning, I'd love for you to jot this down or type it in your laptop or your iPad or whatever, jot this down. I think we together should launch a Bible institute. For what? Well, let's look. Reflecting the goals and the picture that is painted for us in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let me read it for you from the English Standard Version, verses 1 through 7. And let's take each verse and get a facet of what it might look like and how it might function and who the audience might be and what the goals might be. Let me read it for you in totality, verses 1 through 7. Paul writes to Timothy, who's now a functioning pastor, a leader in the church of Ephesus in ancient Asia Minor. He says, you then, my child, not my student, my child. This is much more than teacher and student. I mean, there's a mentorship clearly that had gone on. Between the two, we can read about it in the book of Acts in part. You, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now, I understand that Paul is speaking to one of his disciples, one of his pupils, one of his, his protégés, if you will. But in these seven verses, we can tease out seven aspects of the kind of thing he did in Timothy's life, which should become for us a great biblically inspired template of what it looks like if we're going to launch something that we're going to call Compass Bible Institute. If God gives us the grace to accomplish this, here's some of the things that should happen. Number one, verse one, you then my child be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's a general call that all of us could use. We need strong Christians who are strengthened by the grace, the favor, the relationship with our creator that is in this relationship through the mediator, the intercessor, Christ Jesus. Cling to Christ and be strong in this established relationship with God. We need Christians that are strong. And I'll tell you what, it's one thing for me to get up here and preach and to have you lean back, maybe take some notes, uh, look at the notes that I provided, turn the worksheet over, see the books, go, oh, those are interesting. Maybe I should read one of those one of these days. There's something very different about the strengthening of your Christian life that you may get from that, which if you're a self-starter and you're motivated, you may take it a lot further than the guy next to you. 
But there's a whole nother dynamic. If we can get in a classroom setting, a small interactive classroom setting with instructors that are caring about what this is all about, strengthening Christians, and having that work in a way with interaction, with a kind of of relationship with students, with a kind of mastery of the material that is asked for in a classroom setting, like all of us have been in at one time or another. It's not just read the book, but let me prove that you mastered the material in that, that you can articulate back interacting with other issues in the world based on that material. Can you write a paper that is acceptably showing your competence in those areas? Those things, they should strengthen Christians. CBI, let's put it this way. Number one, Verse 1, we ought to be there to strengthen Christians. And that's not something that 18 through 22-year-olds alone need. All of us need that. And I would say this, you might be strengthened in a way in your Christian life if you had a kind of setting that was much more formalized and rigorous than you have now. I'm sure you listen to Christian radio or podcasts. I'm sure you listen to me. Uh, Hopefully you listen to me as you're awake and attentive and, and, and actively listening. But if you were to say, let's take that to the next level. No longer do we have books on the back that you look at and say, I'm glad Mike read a few books this week. But hey, I'm now assigned a book. I got to read it. I got to read it by next Friday. I've got to write a book report on that. I've now got to take the things that I've learned in this class and in this book, interact with this professor and be able to say, here's how I can prove to you. I get it. I understand it. When Moody was asked in that uh, San Francisco interview, what kinds of things do you want to teach at the Institute? He said, well, the great foundational biblical doctrines and, of course, I want this training, to put it in his words, of a great deal of instruction in the methods of practical work, practical Christian ministry. Well, in the middle of that, he said this. He said, what we need, speaking of the great fundamentals of the Bible, instruction in doctrine, and then he just rattled this off, and I can just see Moody doing this, you know, after some preaching event and the guy from the paper's there, and he says this, hey, we need the great fundamentals of the Bible taught, instruction in these things, things like repentance, regeneration by the Holy Spirit, atonement, conversion, justification, redemption, faith and assurance, law and grace, sanctification, consecration, the resurrection. He listed a bunch of Bible words there, did he not? And some of you are sitting there going, I know those words. And you may even say, I could define those words. Can you imagine sitting in a classroom setting where you had a chance with someone who's, who's challenging you to be strengthened in topics like, man, I get it. I understand repentance, regeneration, atonement, conversion, justification, redemption, faith, assurance, law, and grace, sanctification, consecration, re- resurrection in a way that you never have before. Would that give you a grip on this thing called the Christian life? Could you leave those classrooms and say, I get it. There's a kind of strengthening of my Christian life I can't get just by passively listening to sermons on the weekend or the radio. This is not something that's just for students that come out of high school and are looking for a place to go to college. CBI, at least my vision for it, is that which is bound up in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, that we want to see our people filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Not just so that we can know it in our head, but so as to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God and being strengthened with all power. Paul wanted Timothy and Silas and Titus to be strengthened. And there's a kind of strength that we get in the favor that is derived in our relationship with Christ. We need to learn God's word in a challenging setting. Let's launch a Bible Institute to strengthen Christians. That may get you excited. Well, maybe I want to take a class there. This is not about working through a school in a Christian environment to matriculate to get a degree so you can come and go be a dentist. That's not the goal. The goal is to strengthen Christians in a formalized classroom setting. Verse 2. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Hey, Timothy, you take the things I taught you and entrusted to you, and I want you to find faithful people so that you can be the Apostle Paul in their lives and mentor them and disciple them. Oh, so that they'll be eventually the Apostle Paul in someone else's life, and they can disciple and mentor other people, and I want you now to be the leader. I'm going to send you off, and you be the leader. And now he is, 700 miles away from Jerusalem, sitting there in Ephesus, being the guy who is leading in this church along with his fellow pastors. That was his job. We need to do more than just take the average Christian who says, yeah, I want to be a stronger Christian. I need good classes that'll help me do that with competent instructors. Number two, we need to equip teachers. There needs to be people that will be at the front of a class, be in front of a a group of, of Sunday school students, be in front of our Awana kids, be in front of a church auditorium that need to be the teachers. 
Every teacher at one time was a student, and every student that we have in a Compass Bible Institute class, we want to look at the potential and say, could you be the kind of teacher that ends up teaching not only in church, but in classes like this? We want to replicate these people. We want to send them off. When we take guys like Bobby or Pastor Elliot, or we take Pastor Ben and send them up to Idaho, these people become the teachers and the leaders. They need to be prepared. You say, well, doesn't seminary do that? Well, sure it does. But what's the distinction? The distinction is something, and again, I'm not here to bash on those Christian schools or seminaries, is the lack of practical training to equip teachers. I, saw, I thought, who are, and I, I picked a, a, a gal and, and a guy, and I said, I want to pick these, I want to call them, I'm going to talk to them, text them, and I want to I find out, I just have a question for them. Didn't know it was coming, out of the blue, I called an up-and-coming, awesome expositor of God's word, he doesn't have the national notoriety that he should have, but he's going to. And I asked him, I said, tell me, here's, I, I wrote it down. How much of your gift to preach was developed in Bible school? I thought right out of school, you went and got a degree at one of the premier Bible colleges in our country. I said, how much of your gift to pre- was developed in that Bible school? Here was the answer, quote, there was little, if any, practical help from my Bible school, unquote. Woo. Uh, wait a minute, you came out getting a job based on a degree like that, and you're telling me you got little, and then, if any, practical help. Great female expositor. You know her. She's in charge of lots of ministries in our church. Same question, same context. Tell me about your, your practical. Here's what I got in all capital letters. I had zero, and here was the topic when we were discussing this, zero practical assignments outside of the classroom. When it came to the ministry, when I'm looking at guys that say, I have a master's divinity, I have no experience in teaching. I said, how much experience were you required to get in your curriculum? Because these people went to seminary a lot later in time than I did. I mean, I was back in the olden days, but when it came to their training, none, none. And I think to myself, at least when I went to my undergrad, I'm so grateful that a hundred years after Dwight Lyman Moody had cast the vision for a real training center, the Bible Work Institute, he called it, Bible-Work Institute, they were still requiring that of me. They, they dumped me as a freshman. I, I'd gone across the country, and now I was on a campus, and they said, great, you're, here was my first assignment on the first day that classes started. I was told, this Sunday, you're going to a nursing home with all the shut-ins, and you're going to lead a church service there. <laughs> Unbelievable. Next semester, we're going to take you in a van, you know, one of those vans that holds 12 people. We're going to drop you off in, in a north, you know, near north side uh, community here in Chicago. And from nine o'clock to noon, we'll pick you up at noon. You're going to do nothing but knock on doors and share the gospel with people. Next semester, you're going to go to a north side church that has a Sunday school class and they've written the, the, the institute and they said, we have no one to teach our Sunday school. You're going to go to that class and all semester, every single Sunday, you're going to take the subway up to this church and you're going to do nothing but teach them the Bible every Sunday morning, junior high boys. I was required to do that. And today I'm asking people that graduate from premier institutions, what kind of requirements did you have outside the classroom to develop this kind of teaching skill? And the answer is consistently little, if any, or zero, none. We can't do this without that, of course, great deal of instruction in the methods of practical work and asking folks to actually engage in doing it. I asked this up-and-coming expositor, this, this guy, I said, was there a single assignment for you to preach outside of homiletics class? The answer was no, absolutely not. I wrote a book on preaching. It's a kind of preaching I think that we need more of. Unfortunately, a lot of the pulpit today suffers from people trying to take the great lectures they hear in the ivory towers of seminary and simply repeating those in church pulpits. If you go back to Spurgeon's Preacher's College, for instance, in London, he wasn't concerned about saying, let's take all the systematic theology and just have you try to, in a, in a pithy way, say that in the pulpit. He said, I know a lot of guys that come through the ranks that know all about the, the ten toes of the beast, and they know all about all the crazy things going on in the book of Ezekiel, but they do not know how to take the Bible and connect it with the sins of the businessmen. They don't know the, the challenges and temptations of the times. They are not the kinds of people that know how to take the classroom work and merge it into real ministry. we got to have a place that gets back to that. And I'd say, and even in a greater way than it was when I was a freshman in the early 80s. Let's launch a Bible Institute to strengthen Christians and let's get one to equip teachers. When I say equip, I don't mean teach teachers. I mean equip teachers. That's a different kind of training. Verse 3. Paul said to Timothy, hey, Timothy there in Ephesus, you need to suffer 
share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. You know, that verse will be completely irrelevant when you are sitting in the millennial kingdom or walking through the gates of the new Jerusalem. You will never have to ever again try to do any kind of ministry. You'll be doing ministry, but you'll never have to do it as a soldier who's suffering. You won't have to. Why? Because culture is going to be behind you. We live in a post-Christian culture. If not, we're right on the threshold walking through it, you understand. The kind of ministry that we need to prepare people for is a ministry of spiritual warfare. When Jesus said, hey, pray, remember this from Luke 10? He said, you should pray, beseech the Lord of the harvest to thrust forth the workers into his harvest field. You know that, right? Why? Because it started this way in verse 2. It said, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Here's verse 3. Go on your way then, right? He's sending them out. I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. I assure you this, in the first century, when you had Roman emperors sitting in Rome with their heavy hand that ramped up in persecution in the first century, they had a sense of what we are now having to prepare for. We're no longer going to be able to be a Christian version of Cal State Northridge. We cannot possibly be a Christian version of UCI. We're going to have to be an institute that's training people to face our culture. And one of the primary ways that we fight the good fight of faith is to be apologists for the faith. Number three, we need to put it this way. We need to, in CBI, embolden apologists. Embolden them. And you embolden them by equipping them and training them and instructing them. Now, who needs to be strengthened as a Christian? Everyone does. Who needs to be equipped as teachers? Well, those that think they have a teaching gift. Look at this one. Embolden them. I think everyone needs to be emboldened as an apologist. But if there's ever a group of people that needs to be emboldened to defend the faith, it certainly is our 18 to 22-year-olds. Let's think about this. Go back to my dad and the wisdom that he had saying to my, bolt, my brother and I, you can go to a university, go there, that's great, but you've got to spend a year first in a Bible institute so that you know what you believe and you know why you believe it. That was his mantra for us as teenagers. So we had no option but to be sent off like, like prisoners to the penitentiary, in my mind as a 17-year-old, to go to college, a Christian I wouldn't even call it a college. I couldn't even tell people I was in college. I was in a Bible institute, but I was there and I was supposed to do a year there so I could prepare to defend my faith. Yet my dad did not want me to go without God's equipping power in my life so that I could sit there as I ended up doing at the University of Arizona, being able to hold my own as I had an onslaught against Christianity in almost every single class I ever took on that Tucson campus. And I'm saying this, one of the visions I have for CBI is to have a place where we can take a a program, even if it's just a one-year program of a Christian worldview apologetics training that takes you from your senior year in high school and prepares you for your first year, even if you are going to be an architect or a dentist or whatever God's called you to be, but we prepare you. That should be an intensive course where we bring the best apologists from across the country and we do whatever we can to lure them to sunny Southern California. And that's one of the advantages of having a school here. We can get some great folks. We'll, do, we'll plan the course in December or January and we will bring them here and, say, and show them pictures of the beach and say, come teach our apologetics courses to train our teenagers. But I'll bet some people here that are in their 50s and 60s need this and probably desire to be emboldened as good soldiers of Christ Jesus, because it is a battle. It is a fight, and we, be, we better be ready to fight it. That word apologetics, by the way, I know you know this, most of you, First Peter chapter 3, verse 15, we ought to be always prepared to make a defense. That word, apologio, apo, away from, logia, a charge, a statement. That statement of them saying, you're stupid to believe in the Bible. You're stupid to believe in a God who created the world. You're stupid to believe in all those things. We need to be able to defend these things. Truth is true. It corresponds with reality. The devices of our world trying to undo us. We need to make sure that we are grounded, emboldened, strong. Verse 4. No soldier, speaking of soldiers, get entangled in civilian pursuits. Why? Because the soldier's aim is to please the one who enlisted him. You have a job. Here's your job. Go out and do it. Now, some people are called. They're called. They have a gift and they're called to do a kind of ministry that they had better fulfill. I want CBI to be a place, number four, that directs the call, that gives them that direction. If you have this gift, let's help direct you either to whatever post that gift is is going to best flourish in as a Sunday school teacher, as a missionary, as a Bible translator, as a preacher, as a youth pastor. Let's help get you there. Let's direct the call. It'd be one thing for you in your 70s to sit back and say, oh man, I really had, the, you know, I had the tools. If I just would have applied myself, I could have been the best figure skater that America has ever seen. Or I could have been a great folk singer or 
Man, I could have been a great baseball star. I just never applied myself. It'd be one thing for you to sit back with that kind of worldly regret when you're 70. But if you are on your deathbed or you stand before the beam of seat of Christ and you say, you know, I could have run that program. I, I could have led those kids. I could have worked with those youth. I could have taught the word. I could have been that missionary. And you look back and say, I miss that calling. I did not maximize this gift. And you ought to remember the passage in Matthew 25 when Jesus said, that's like the guy who took this talent, which is a measure of of a monetary measure of, of money, of silver, and he buried it in the ground. He did not hear what I want to hear, and that is, as this text says, well done, good and faithful servant, to please the enlisting officer. You were commissioned and given things in your life. I don't want you to regret that you could have been a biblical counselor. You could have been a ministry leader. You could have been a teacher of the word and you look back on your life and say, oh, I didn't, I, I didn't do that. I'd like CBI to be a place that helps gifted people find their ministry calling and not get entangled in anything less. Verse 5, an athlete. He's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. You know what athletes need? They need coaches. Athletes need coaches so they can know what the rules are. You don't want to run the race and get disqualified. You don't want to box in that and do something that you shouldn't do. You don't want to learn to play hockey and think all you got to do is put the puck in the, in the net. There's all kinds of rules. You need coaches to help you know those rules and keep those rules. We as Christians, we are called to serve Christ by reaching people and teaching people. That goal that we have, we not, we've got to know the rules. You go to a restaurant and you're going to have many times in your life a a waitress or a waiter come up to your, your table and you think, why in the world am I seeing double? Why do I have two guys with white shirts on instead of, of one? But it's because there is a server in training. They are there. They don't, the boss doesn't say, hey, you want to be a server? That's great. Never done it. No problem. You've been to restaurants many times. You've seen waiters and waitresses. You just go out there and be the best one you can be. That's how a lot of people treat ministry. I said this, you got a lot of people graduating from the premier Bible institutions, or I shouldn't call them that because there's not many left that are called that, Bible colleges and Christian universities in our country, and they've never had a mentoring relationship in a real local church setting. They've never had that. They've never been shadowed. They've never had someone say, watch what I do. Okay, now you do it. I'm going to watch you. You don't ever have that mentoring relationship. Verse 5, we need to coach the servants. They're serving because they're gifted. They have a role to play. They need to be coached. If all I'm doing in a classroom setting is teaching you what I think the Bible says about ministry, about God, go out there and do it. You've seen it done. You've watched your pastor. He's preached a million sermons to you. Just go out there and you try and do the same thing. We need coaching. The weakness of many Bible college instructors is they're professional professors. That's all they do is teach. They're not practitioners. One of the reasons traditional Bible schools don't have training on philosophy of ministry, program structures, financial management, funerals, weddings, grief counseling, is because the people that are teaching the classes don't do it. Some of them have never done it. You've got people that are trying to teach my children, for instance, who go off to school to be pastors, and they've never done the job. They don't know the first thing about standing up at a funeral other than watching one that they've been to. I'm just telling you, so much of the pastor's job, grief counseling, the the issues of marital counseling, these folks oftentimes trying to teach people to say, I think I should be called to do ministry, and we don't have that training. We can't have CBI filled with professional professors. And that's what I mean that. I mean, they're not practitioners. My goal is to make sure that a majority of those instructing classes at CBI are actually engaged in the work. Professors must ministerially practice what they are preaching. That is key. We need to coach the servants with coaches that have actually done what it is that they're asking these students to do. Verse 6, the hardworking farmer ought to have the first share of the crops. A lot of people reading through this passage, even daring to teach this passage, they see hardworking farmer and they think, oh, I'm going to teach, I'm going to say something about hardworking. Well, we've already established that from the very first verse. We know soldiers, it's hard work. We know athlete, hard work. The goal in verse Six is just to keep you from visioning something kind of surreal or pastoral. And by that, I mean just sitting back kind of on your porch with a sunset. Isn't it great to be a farmer with all this land? We want you to picture the farmer with sweat beating up on his forehead, the hardworking farmer. But that's not the focus of the verse. The focus of the verse is think about the hardworking farmer. He ought to have the first share of the crops. What does that mean? Man, he ought to be, he ought to. He ought to be motivated. We read it this morning in today's DBR in Proverbs. The appetite of the worker, it eggs him on. It works for him. It pushes him to be productive because we know all that work, it's going to satisfy you. This picture of farming and and harvests and crops, that's Jesus' favorite analogy for evangelism. And I'll tell you this. 
The reason I'm up here preaching to you this morning and have on my business card, pastor of Compass Bible Church, I got to tell you, has got to be when I look back to my Bible Institute days, when I was forced from day one, my first evangelism 101 class, which is a good start. A lot of of Bible colleges don't even have that anymore. But in that class, day one on the syllabus, one of the assignments that made me breathe very shallow when I read it was go out, share the gospel personally with five non-Christians and write a paper about it. And it's due, whatever, in 40 days. Like, (gasps) I had never done that before. Oh, I'd been on missions trips. I'd done, you know, I'd done group stuff. I'd sung songs and I'd done, you know, all kinds of, I had to now go out on my own and do that. Well, five people, that's the assignment. So by the time the assignment was due, I went out trying to do that. First four people told me what I thought they would tell me. Go pound sand. Why are you talking to me? I don't want to talk about all this. So a lot of negative stuff to write about on the first four people. The fifth person, and again, I was just like one more. I just got to get one more. (laughs) I went down to the water place on... Michigan Avenue and Chicago Avenue, water tower. And, and I went in there, I was just looking for some miserable target that I was going to harass for half an hour. And I sat down, I said, hey, I, I want to talk to you about big stuff like life and death and heaven and hell. And I had the reaction I did not re- expect. I, I'd like to know more about that. And we sat there and talked. I don't know how long it went. I mean, it was years ago, maybe 40 minutes. And he kept on getting increasingly interested. And finally, he said to me, you know, I, am, I would like to become a Christian today. Christ had teed this guy up for me. And there I was in the busyness of that shopping mall. And I prayed with this guy as he repented of his sins and put his trust in Christ. I don't know if I would have done more than five until I had another assignment in class to share the gospel. And yet that fifth one, I got to taste the, fr- the satisfying fruit of the thing that this school was forcing me to do. And you know what? It is the reason I kept saying, well, maybe I, I want to do this more. I, I'd, like, I'd like to have this experience. John Ford, Jesus had sent his disciples out to get some lunch. He's sitting there sharing the gospel with the woman at the well. And they come back and, and they say, Rabbi, eat, eat, eat. And he says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I'm telling you this, some people who tell me when they graduate from premier theological institutions, they've never led someone to Christ personally. I'm telling you, you haven't even tasted the fruit of the crop. I want to see CBI because of the way it approaches Bible work. I'd like to, here's how I'll put it. Number six, I'd like to motivate evangelists. Motivate evangelists by making sure that they're doing the work and that they get the experience that anybody who's ever going to serve in the church, if we're going to plant evangelistically motivated expository preaching churches we got to have people that know what it is to lead someone to Christ there's nothing better there's no greater joy and it comes sometimes by being forced to do it I I remember in Bible school and in my Bible Institute experience having to read the evangelists read the stories of the great missionaries Hudson Taylor, William Carey, Adoniram Judson, all those. I remember having to read all those biographies and I could sit there in the corner of my room in my desk and I could imagine the joy of seeing people come to Christ. But it wasn't until I experienced it myself, being forced to do it, that it became addictive and exciting. CBI should aim to make at least one-third of our assignments a practice in doing assignment. Papers and books are great. Let's write them. Let's read them. But good really comes out of the experience of tasting the fruit of the crop. Number seven, think over what I say. Paul says to Timothy, ah, the Lord's going to give you understanding and everything. Paul knew he was an apostle. He made that clear in Corinthians, though a lot of people misread that, that he has the spirit of God. He's giving revelatory truth in a new covenant age. And he knows, I just gave you some words, you need to ponder them. Just like the Old Testament, you need to. We read it not long ago in Proverbs in our daily Bible reading. You need to. I love this verse. I wrote it down. You need to call out for insight. Raise your voice for understanding. Seek it like silver. Search for it like hidden treasure. Then you'll understand the fear of the Lord. Then you'll find the knowledge of God. The number one word that Jesus uses for us in the New Testament when he describes his followers that are regenerate is the word disciple. Disciple The root of that word in Greek transliterated into the word mathematics is the word mathetos. Mathetos is just bound up in the word mathetos is the concept of a learner, someone who ponders and thinks and, and, and has to work at understanding things. You know, a Bible school, certainly I hope, a Bible institute, 
I mean, certainly, is going to mentally, spiritually, in terms of our understanding, challenge disciples to keep being disciples, to be learners. Number seven, that's how I put it down. I, I want CBI to challenge disciples, to get their minds. You talk about regeneration and conversion and law and grace and all those things that are so important to establish us and make us strong. Part of it is slow down long enough, force yourself to turn off the phone and turn off the TV and read and study and ponder and seek, as it says, truth and understanding like it's silver or hidden treasure. And l- listen to that. I, I read Proverbs 2, 3 through 5, but let me read verse 6. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Where's his mouth? I want to go see his mouth. I want to go listen to his, his voice. Do I sit on the, on the cliffs by the ocean and listen? No, the mouth of the Lord summarized so well in the New Testament. The scriptures are breathed out by God. You want to hear the mouth of God speaking? You want to know where wisdom and knowledge and understanding come from? You've got to go back to the Bible. You've got to go back and hear and understand the word. Our middle name at Compass is Compass Bible Church. The middle name of this new endeavor, if God so motivates us to pull together to make this happen, will be Compass Bible Institute. And the goal is to find that all understanding and all knowledge, all wisdom that we seek is coming from God's personally breathed out words. The highest place should be given to the doctrine of the inspiration and authority of Scripture. That's one of the things I wrote from the very beginning as we talked as I put together an agenda to talk to the pastors. If we're going to do this, this has to be the non-negotiable, the highest view of Scripture that we can have. And as I put it in the material that I sent you and gave you in that printed material, I want to have as high a view of Scripture as the Lord Jesus Christ himself had. And I want to believe in that to the end. Because when all else is done and every voice is spoken, it is the Word of God, Isaiah 40, that stands forever. Compass Bible Institute needs to be a place to gain understanding that comes from God's mouth, i.e. his word, his God-breathed words, the catalyst for all wisdom and knowledge. That's a little bit more to shape your vision of what it is that I'm hoping that we do. Let me take you back to January 1885 when Moody stood up at Madison and LaSalle and he told a group of people much like this in a place called Farwell Hall, listen, let's start this institute to find gifted people to train them to reach people. That picture was sandwiched between a set of words, and I'll just give you a few of them. Famous sermon, speech, vision casting, like this. You want to want sermons, normal sermons? We'll get to that next week. But this is a vision casting session to say, this is what I think this generation can do, this generation at Compass Bible Church. I read you this part. I'll tell you what I want. I want to, I'll tell you what I want. I want on, uh, what I have on my heart. I, I want to take people that have gifts and train them for the work of reaching people. And then he went on. He's much bolder than I am. Here's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see $150,000 raised right now. Right now. You say, well, that's not too bad. $250,000 is 1885. Punch it into your inflation calculator. That's about $7 million. And he said, that's what I want to do to start the project. $7 million. He says, seven million, let's put it in our terms, seven million for Chicago is nothing. He says, it's nothing. Now, some will be startled at this price. But see how the money is pouring in on you? See how real estate has gone up? See how wealth is accumulating in our day? He spoke to people, just like Paul spoke to the Corinthians. And he said, listen, there's something to be done here, and I'm asking you boldly to invest in it. Number two in your outline, if you're taking notes, at this point, you may stop taking notes because it's getting personal. But number two... I'm going to ask you to invest with me to make this happen. To reach, teach, and train. I'd like you to invest with me to see this happen, this vision come to fruition. A church that's all about expository preaching churches being planted and replicated with a strong base that we are sitting in now, having it be the kind of place that will be a workable, functioning, optimized campus for the next 20 years at least, and a training center that sits across the street and I pray will grow into something much bigger But all that's going to take an investment, an investment of our money. He said, listen, $7 million, nothing for Chicago. Look at the money. It's so good. As I took that quote and I threw it into my notes, I flipped on the news to make sure the world wasn't blowing up yesterday. And I watched our current president and our former president arguing on videotape about who's responsible for the economic boon that we're in the middle of. And there they are arguing about, 
you know, it's so, they're both agreeing how good it is right now. And if you've looked at your 401ks or your 403bs or your investments or your money markets, things are good right now. And I'm thinking, how ideal, because I had just pasted this into my notes. He stands up in a day in 1885, and things were going really well in Chicago. And he goes, guys, it's, it's going well. He said $7 million, or in that case, a quarter of a million dollars. He said, it's not that much. He'd think how we can take people who have gifts and train them for the work of reaching people. Second Corinthians chapter 9 is a passage I'd like you to turn to, but as you do, and maybe you're about to cross your arms at this point, and I know why, and I hate it as much as you do. I hate the fact that I'm about to quote passages that guys quote while they're raising enough money to buy their third Learjet so they can fly around and do their ministry. I fly coach, just so you know how I fly around the country. This is not about the prosperity gospel that you'll hear all over our culture. You understand that. This is about trying to take these passages within their context, and I want to prove something to you here as I think about the kind of project that I'm asking you to step into. I'm asking you to invest with an initial gift, just like the Apostle Paul was saying. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, I know your heart. I know how excited you are. Look at verse, verse 1. 2 Corinthians 9, 1. Now, it's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. I know you want to help them. In our case, looking down the quarter of time. I know your readiness, of which I boast about you and the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has already been ready since last year. I, I, I put this website, I had the team put the website together, and I unveiled it last week. So it's been up for seven days now. I can't help but share the news of the good things that we're doing here at Compass to brag on you a little bit because I know this church is unique. I mean, I had other people writing me saying, you know, 10 to 12% of of congregants leave churches when they start capital fundraising. And I said, yeah, but this is Compass Bible Church. This ain't your average church that sees the scary stuff and runs. And then I told some of my friends because I went all across, I'm telling all my colleagues, all the people I know across the country, look at what they're doing at our church. And I couldn't help as I talked to some of the closer friends of mine as they clicked through the page and they got to that last page where the giving button is and they, that, little, that little meter that's there and that started to, to creep up a little bit. $25 million, that's gigantic. And then they saw that money. They go, well, they're getting started. And I said this, I didn't even ask them. I haven't even asked them yet. I just told them that the website was up. I mean, I don't want to make too close of a parallel. But I've been bragging about you guys, your readiness, your zeal. I'm I'm, going to ask you now, but I am saying this. (laughs) I'm telling guys across the country, pastors and leaders and school administrators and presidents of schools, look at this church. They are eager to do this. It's exciting. I hadn't even had a chance until like Wednesday to actually put put my own personal contribution to that. But I'm thinking to myself, this is a great church. These guys are serious about reaching, teaching, and training. He says in the middle of verse 2, your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter. Can you imagine how embarrassed I'd be at this point? (laughs) If as Paul says, all that enthusiasm that I get on the patio at the door, the emails that are positive that I get, if it translated into nothing, I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter so that you may be ready. As I said, you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready and you had nothing to give, we'd be humiliated not to say, say nothing of you, the way you talked, being so confident. So I thought it was necessary to urge brothers to go on ahead and arrange the advance gift that you've promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not an exaction, a willing gift and not some compulsion. And let me say that sidebar here for a few of you that need this. You do not have to participate in this financially. You do not have to participate. Now, I could say, when sometimes I give the announcement and the guys come down with the bag to pass the bag, you do have to give. You have to give. The Bible makes it clear. If you're a Christian and this is your church and you reap spiritual things from the spiritual work that goes on in this church, it is your requirement before God to give to this church. You're in sin if you don't and God will deal with you accordingly. That is the requirement. What you purpose in your heart, that's what you should do. The Old Testament standards sometimes help give us a gauge, but that is your requirement. This, though just like these guys. Of course, Paul had made the point. You better support your ministry. You better support your church in Corinth. You better support your pastor. Don't muzzle the ox while he's threshing, which is not a very big compliment to the pastors that they had, but you got to give in your offering. But then he gets to stuff like this and he says, it's a willing gift. The Old Testament, they had to give to support 
the giving structure and the spiritual leadership of the nation. But when it came to things like the tabernacle, totally free will, willing, optional. When it came to Solomon building the temple, optional. This was not a tax. This was not a mandatory offering. This is a free will. When it comes to things like this, not under compulsion. I've had people write me, ah, Compass 2020, I'm not ever going to give to this. Okay, great, great, great. You don't have to write me. It's fine. You don't have to give. You don't have to give. Of course, you have to give if this is your church. As a regular part of your giving, goes right into the general fund, helps pay our light bill, helps our youth pastors, you know, pay pay the diaper bills, you know, for their kids. You got to pay. When it comes to this, you don't have to. But I'm challenging you in this point to make an investment to make this happen. If you choose not to, great. I'm not going to fight you over that. But I think the work that God is doing here and the doors that have opened, this is a phenomenal opportunity. I would invite you at some point to go on my Twitter soon, maybe now, maybe after lunch, my Twitter or Facebook. I think I posted it in both places. I posted three pictures on both of those because I sat there last night after I preached and I thought, I want to put out there a picture that is so encouraging to me three of them. I'll start with the one that'll come up first on the feed. And by, if you want to find me on social media, it's just at Pastor Mike, both at Facebook and, and, and uh, Twitter. If you go to Twitter, for instance, and you look at Pastor Mike, twitter.com slash Pastor Mike, you will see the first picture is six guys that were principal givers who responded to Moody when he said, let's plant this, this thing, this Bible work institute. Six guys, they were big, the big boys that stepped up who had been, I like the way one historian put it, they were non-ordinary donors, right? These were like extraordinary donors who said, God has blessed me and the reason I think he's blessed me is to see the vision here and get this thing started. I put those big six guys and they're all big, you know, big wheels and business and all that in Chicago back in the 1880s. The next picture I put was the first quote-unquote graduating class. Didn't care about accreditation. Moody didn't care about academic kudos. He just gave them a certificate of completion. The first people, the first graduating class is the next picture you'll see there in black and white that I put up. Guess how many people are in that gigantic graduating class? Seven. He was asking for an equivalent of $7 million. They stepped up and did more than that. And I'm thinking, how you feel there after a couple of years when your first class is a million dollars a student to get them through this program? <laughs> oh, man. Talk about guys needing faith. I understand $25 million is a lot. And I understand that it may be a couple of years before we start to see some of the fruit of this start to look like, wow, that was a good investment. But I think if we could have the vision that takes you to the third picture on my social media feed, of people standing on the front doorstep of the initial Bible Work Institute with their guitar cases in their hands, with Bibles in their hands. They're leaving the night school to go out to do their weekly ministry assignment, which, again, I tell you, most Christian universities and colleges don't even have those kinds of assignments anymore, certainly not regular assignments. I think that's the kind of thing that changed and transformed my life in the 1980s, and I can assure you, if you and I have the vision to make this happen and invest to make this happen, that's the kind of thing that's going to be happening down the road. Until Christ comes back. I know it's going to start small in one building. I started pulling up in Dallas, the Bible Institute. Starting one little building that now blossomed into the Dallas Seminary. In Denver, same thing. At Biola, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, same thing. Small in downtown LA on Hope Street. Now, so many of these are far different than what I want to do now and what I think is God's calling for us. But it all started with people going, let's make this happen. Two ways I set this up in the brochures you'll see is an initial gift. We cannot sign and get things moving and do any of this unless we have enough up front. And I don't want you to say, well, I hope we have our, our McCormick's and those big boys like Moody had, and I'll trust them. And I'm not asking for all of us to make equal gifts. There's got to be people that are going to give millions of this or it's not going to happen. But I am asking for all of us to make an equal kind of sacrifice. If they're going to dip into their savings and their investments to make this happen, I want to look at my next summer or I want to look at something I wanted to do in the house or my wife's saying, I want to do this in the kitchen or whatever. And I'm going to say, no, we're going to put this off and we're going to sacrifice and put this to Compass 2020. All of us having equal sacrifice. My gift will not be as big as many of you in this room that will be able to give. But I want to equally say, we're going to give big in a sacrificial way to make this happen, if you choose to. Then there's that card that you probably hated seeing in your worship packet this morning. And you certainly hated this line, I'm sure, a pledge card. And again, I feel weird about all this because this is the kind of thing that people do so that they can get their, you know, their yacht or their summer house in Florida. I have no summer houses. I don't have a yacht. I don't even have a dinghy. 
and, and I fly coach. I'm not saying I'm poor. I live like you comfortably in, in Orange County. I'm grateful for that. But I am saying this pledge card is all about this vision. I don't know what to do to say to our business department and our managers, what are we going to do in the months ahead in terms of these plans? What can our architects do? What can we do next door? I don't know unless I know what's going to be coming in in the next two years. So what we're saying is an initial gift, which isn't even on here, but everyone should start, if you want to be a part of this, with something initial, because we can't even get started with that initial gift. But then we're going to say, for the next two years until fall of 2020, what will you give monthly that is not your normal giving to the church, that wants to see these expository preaching churches established and this training center, CBI, built and launched? What are you going to do? If you're going to do something, please let us know. Take this home, pray about it. If you're married, pray with your spouse about it, make a decision, and then you don't have to turn this physical card in. We'll have electronic ways for you to do this on our website, but if you want to, stick this in the mail. Just let us know so we can say, okay, let's do the math. Okay, this is how much. This is how our church responded. If, if we have to come to you like Moses and Aaron say, you've given enough, and we will do that. We hit 25 million, fine, stop. We'll be done. But if we're less than that, if we're at a place where we say, oh, you know, we, we only did half of that, well, then we're going to have to cut back and, and, and sacrifice all the things we could have done or wanted to do, and just we just need to know based on this. Now, I know some people will come to our church a year from now and participate in this, but we're going to do the best we can with trying to gauge the budget for all this with things like this. So check your app. That'll be coming as something where you can do this online. Check the Compass 20, compassav2020.com site, or just fill this out at some point prayerfully. And, and tell us when you'll start that monthly and what you'll do. My wife and I are going to do what you do. We're going to pray about initial gift. We've given a little bit already. We're going to give a lot more to start out of things that we wanted to do that we're going to sacrifice. And then we're going to budget to make this happen monthly until September of 2020 to go just toward this. I would invite you to do the same. The rest of that passage in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 10, again, it's often quoted in the wrong in the mouths of the wrong kinds of leaders. But if you can go back to the Apostle Paul and picture him, a guy who was training people for ministry and wanting to meet the needs of the saints, he said this, I know this, that he, God, who supplies seed for the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. I want to get to heaven and say, you did something righteous in that dark world. And you will be enriched, verse 11, in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God for this ministry and this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. I can tell you in the 1980s, looking back at the faces in some of the books I was forced to read about the founding of the Bible Institute that changed my life, I looked at those six faces and I said, I thank God that Moody not only had that vision, but guys like that and many others that, that don't have as many zeros after their checks that did the same thing to start these kinds of movements that made a difference. And if you say, well, just why don't, can't we just send everybody to those? They've just, they've changed. And I'm not lamenting them. I'm not saying they're bad places. They've just changed what the mission is for them. Let's get back to the original mission of a Bible work institute. Ministry and learning combined. I know this pledge card may be distasteful to some, But there's something so central in the Old Testament to making a vow financially to God and paying on it as an act of worship. I'll just leave you with two psalms. Psalm 76, 11. Make your vows to the Lord and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. We fear the Lord. Everything we have is his. You know you're giving away every bit that you have? Every dime you have, you're going to give it away. Every dime I have, I will give away. Everything I have in every account will be given away at one point. I'll take none of it with me. But here were godly people saying, I'm going to make a vow to give this much of what I do. I'm going to give it to the Lord. He's to be feared. He's the great king. Another verse, Psalm 116, 12. What am I going to render the Lord for all the benefits he's given to me? I'm going to lift up the cup of salvation. I'm going to praise him for his saving my life. I'm going to call upon the name of the Lord. I'm going to be a prayerful person. And I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all of his people. As you watch that needle creep toward the 25 million mark, I want you to be thankful to God that you're surrounded by some people that have made some pledges, some vows to the Lord. And then the next 24 months that they are faithful to pay on those as we invest in the future. You don't want to invest? Great. I'm not going to twist your arm. I won't show up at your house. I'll ask you once. And I'll see what God does with us. 
in the next two years and the next 20 years. Let's pray. God, give us faith to see beyond the current realities of our everyday life to what might happen if we return to a time of saying we're not interested in the world's kudos, we don't want to build some kind of training center that has to have the, all the accreditation organizations patting us on the back. We don't need the government funds. We're not trying to make compromises. We just want a center that trains people to reach people for Christ. Instruction by practitioners to raise them up, to strengthen them, to get our teenagers to know what they believe and why they believe it, being able to defend the faith, ultimately seeing a training center launch churches, God, in in Riverside, Corona, Indio, Palm Desert, in the South Bay, in Cerritos, down south in Alpine, Del Mar, all throughout San Diego County and up into L.A. County to see our church planning ministry go into Arizona and Texas and New Mexico and Nevada. God, praise you that we are now in Idaho. Let it move into Montana and Iowa and Nebraska, Kansas. God, let this ministry move all the way across the country where people are serious and excited about reaching, teaching, and training with a pulpit that is preaching your word verse by verse with a high, high, high view, an uncompromising view of your word. God, may it be that this church pulls together in this season to do this work. We trust that we're following your lead, that this is something that you want to do in our generation, in our day, with this congregation. Let us together do something that we could never do on our own as we seek to see your kingdom advance, as we seek to see the Great Commission carried out among us. God, do this, I pray, that we might give you glory down the road. We might give you praise and thanksgiving, seeing all that you've done in our presence. In Jesus' name, amen.